take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean, and this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Be sure to check us out online or on our Facebook page and Instagram at Couple Synergy or our website, couplesynergy.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couple Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring our experience helping thousands of couples transform their relationships for nearly 20 years. You know, everyone says you should work on your relationship, but nobody teaches us how. So we've created this podcast to teach people what they can do to create the relationship they've always dreamed of with the partner they fell in love with. In this episode, Jean and I will be talking about a kind of a new concept, right? And something that we've been experiencing ourselves and also seeing other people experience this. And it's something that we call rapid stimuli adjustment fatigue. Wow, those are some fancy words. Aren't they, right? What does that mean? Say that again. Rapid stimuli adjustment fatigue, RSAF, I Mm. guess, if you want to put it for short. Yeah, you know, in order for anything to be legit, it's got to be complicated. Sure, right, right. right. So what does that mean? So we've been talking about this, Mm -hmm. right? And we have been experiencing this fatigue that is following socialization, Right. So it's like after you, I mean, because everyone's coming off of this, this lockdown and now starting to socialize, you know, with people. And after the socialization, it seems like there's this draining period, right? This period of just feeling really tired, you know, and just really kind of low energy. And so this is something we've been experiencing ourselves. And we've also heard from other people that they are experiencing it as well. And so we just started talking about this. And I think it's it's really a, a very viable thing. So I think it's bigger than just the isolation and then socializing again. I think it's a natural occurrence that happens all the time, which we experienced at several times in our life when we controlled the stimulus around us, right? So this concept of rapid stimuli mm-hmm. shift. Just a shift from one extreme to the other. Right. So imagine that you are listening to classical music in your car and having a lovely time and you get out of your car and you walk in your house and the family's there and they're all energetic and cre- and you go from like shock, right? From this mellow place to like overstimuli or vice versa. I think we were talking about that like when you're out at a bar and it's closing time and all of a sudden they flip the, lights, flip on the lights on and you're on, like, yeah. ah. <laughs> right. And so it's this rapid shift in your environment, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you are going from isolation and not really talking to anybody to being in a room full of people with all of that stimuli going on, it it can be a shock to the system. And so because of that, you you might feel kind of tired afterwards. There, There actually is a study that was done in Helsinki, just in my research here. Um, the title of the study was happy now, tired later, Extroverted and conscientious behavior are related to immediate mood gains, but to later fatigue. And so they were just studying, you know, social interaction just in general. 
and how it can lead to feeling fatigued three hours later after a social event. And so this is this would be definitely relatable here. You know, when you're going from a, an extreme of not socializing with people to being around people, especially, you know, after three months of isolation, to feeling this fatigue afterwards, because there's this excess of stimuli that you are not around or exposing yourself to. I remember the first time we had one person over, right? Right. And we had a fire going and one of the neighbors came by and sat across the fire. And I remember all of us going, wow, this feels so good to see another human being and to just talk normally and not have, you know, just tele-chatting and whatever kind of just stuff going on. laughing, yeah. interacting, yeah. It was, it was very strange and just it was needed at that moment. So it's sort of like a pick you up, but at some point it drops you back down because of atrophy. You know, that's a really interesting word, right? And we know that with our physical bodies, if you work out, over time you get stronger and you build muscle, but if you stop working out, you atrophy and the muscle gets weaker and smaller and can go away. So the same thing happens in our ability to socialize. There's this adjustment we have to it. And so when we're normally around a lot of people, we know how to adjust to that and manage ourselves with that. But when you go from those extreme environments, from really quiet to really loud, or from isolation to a lot of people, we, don't, we can't adjust that quickly. I remember experiencing this after our hike in 2016, right? When we hiked the John Muir Trail, and we were out on the trail for 20 days, and there was no interaction with other people. And so when we came back, there was a, it was a huge shift. Well, there was no interaction with other people, but there was also no electronics. Right. So I think we had about two hours worth of battery for music one day. Right. And the rest of the time, it was just the environment. Mm -hmm. The and, stillness of mm -hmm. the environment and everything, yeah. Right. So there was that as well as the lack of people. Right. And so coming back off that hike, it was like overload, you know, of stimuli and people and electronics and all of that. I don't remember experiencing that going in, like going into the wilderness and the lack of that stimuli. I don't, I didn't feel as much of the shock of that as I did on the other end of coming out of that. But that might be because we trained. We had done 500 miles you know, obviously in shorter hikes, you mm -hmm. know, five, 10 miles at a time. And so might, maybe we did train ourselves for that type of environment. There was a gradual kind of titration of, mm -hmm. of that kind of environment. Yeah, yeah. That, that would make sense and that we would ease our way into that environment. And then on the, on the other end, coming out of that environment, it was a, a abrupt shift. Right. It's sort of the same thing, I think, if you jump into a swimming pool, you know, and it feels kind of shocking. Right. But then within a minute or so, your body sort of adapts to that and you feel fine. Mm -hmm. But if you go and work out really hard, you're really sweaty and really overworked and you jump in, it actually feels lovely. Right. I mean, we're not talking about the ability or the lack of ability to adjust to this afterwards. We're really just talking about the actual shift, mm -hmm. right? That shock to the system of going from one extreme to the other. And that would cause this 
fatigue afterwards, right? And and we've heard this from different people, right? Some people said, you know what, I've been working at home forever. This is no change for me. I like this isolation. Mm-hmm. I'm good. Other people would say, you know, I'm an essential worker. And so I've been living my life and seeing people. And so I'm good. I don't notice that shift either. But it's the people in the middle who had a direct uh, change in their regular routine from where we were on, you know, March 15th. Right. That are really experiencing that. And we're hearing that across the board about how it feels great to get out and how draining it is. (laughs) I, I think this would affect people differently depending on their level of interaction in general. So we would call this the, what do we call it, the emotional sensitivity scale? It's uh, the stimuli sensitivity scale, mm-hmm. right? And so if you are a person who's more of an introvert, you know, you're not really going to be around a lot of stimuli in general. And so, you know, if you are... You're, you're naturally going to feel this zap of energy being around a lot of stimuli versus someone who is an extrovert, you know, they might feel more of a shock going from isolation to being around a lot of people because of those extremes. This is something you see in babies, right? When a baby's born, they may have a need for a lot of touch and a lot of closeness, or they may have a need to be put down and left alone to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I think that temperament is already in us of how much interacting we like to do. That's one piece of it. And I think the next piece is whatever we are exposed to. So I know that as a child, I was exposed to a lot of things, a lot of sporting events and church stuff and camping and water skiing and snow skiing and bowling. Just a lot of interaction yep. with a lot of people. And so when you learn those things young in life, they're not scary. They're not intimidating. You feel fine because you're not all worried about anything yet, you know, like insecure or making a mistake. Mm -hmm. But if you're an adult and you are trying to try new things and you didn't have a lot of that as a child, it's really difficult to allow yourself to get exposed to the unknown, right? Absolutely. Right. And so that's part of the environmental influence of how we get that sensitivity. And that sensitivity builds up, right? So when we were on the hike, our sensitivity to stimuli actually heightened because we were paying attention to things like chipmunks rustling in the leaves or... Or the wind. The wind. Mm -hmm. Right, the terrain, all of that even a human being coming close to us. I mean, you would see them from a distance and it would take 10, 15, 20 minutes for them to show up and pass you and move on. So everything moved very slowly and you had a lot of time to sort of prepare for it. And then when we came back, it was shocking, right? But we also built up a resistance to that as well because we are people that really like to expose ourselves to new experiences Mm -hmm. new environments new experiences so we travel a lot we're really open to those kind of things but personally recently i can feel why someone would shy away from that and this is a new feeling for me this feeling of maybe not having control over the environment and what i might be exposed to and the energy that that would take 
And so I've got a little bit less um, oomph to mm. go and and just do something new. Although when we do something new, I always enjoy it. So I'm building that tolerance back up. So yeah, I think this is this may also be a result of you know that shift in, in being in quarantine. And a lot of those new experiences out there were not accessible, you know? And so you had to create kind of more of a mundane routine um, and be creative in your, your routine at home. And so there is this now, this getting used to things being opened again and experiences, you know, now being open again. And, and I think it's that adjustment that, you know, we, we all are going through. I just wonder about couples who have different sensitivity, right? And how they are managing, because I imagine that would be really difficult, difficult just being in a relationship alone. But then if you have one who's, who's more outgoing than the other, and they had to be locked in quarantine, and they're not able to actually interact and be social, you know, how that affects their relationship. I think something you and I have done over the course of our marriage is we've taken conscious steps to self-isolate. So whether that's a walkabout, which is a weekend long where one of us goes away and spends time with ourselves, mm -hmm. or whether that's Vipassana. We were 10 days. We were... Yep. Yeah. And that was with other people, but that's a silent meditation where you don't interact with anyone for those 10 days. And then the hike, right? So those are three different scenarios that we've consciously done throughout our relationship, with, which I think flexes that muscle. Mm. You know, that isolation piece is a time for reflection and rejuvenation and regeneration. And I think our bodies are designed to um, get bored and then think about creative ways to stop that boredom. And then when they're overstimulated to shut down and relax and come back, and get bored again, you know, like there's like this ebb and flow that I think is a really natural part of life. Mm -hmm. Well, I just think about like the amount of, of experiences that you go through, you, you have to process each of those experiences. And if you're just filled in a, with a world of one experience after the other, just bombarding you, you don't really have time to mentally and emotionally process that. And so th those periods of time of being isolated you start processing a lot of the things that you've been through and the thoughts that you've had and the feelings that you've had. Now, I remember in Vipassana, having memories come up of things that haven't happened to me in years, and I didn't even know that they were there, right? But you mm -hmm. had nothing else to do other than self-reflect and go into yourself and, and really start to process those things that you've experienced. That's an interesting thing, and I think that impacts us greatly because when we don't reflect, our body takes the brunt of it. And so your body responds as though you haven't left that event or whatever the thing is that caused emotion inside of you. And so you carry that tension in your body, whether it's in your shoulders or stomach aches or headaches or however that is. And so in Vipassana, you sit and you realize that this is an event that has arose and passed away. And then when you're reflecting in it, you're allowed to let the emotion pass away with it, mm -hmm. which brings a great deal of peace. I mean, right before the great deal of peace is quite painful, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. But then it leaves you with that the residue goes away. 
and you've cleared it from your system. And when we spend a lot of time bombarding ourselves with experience after experience, like binge watching TV or three screens deep, I like to call it, you know, you're on your phone, you're on your laptop, you're on your TV, boom, 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 you're getting hit with stuff all over the place. I forget who said this, but they said that, I think it might have been Greg Braden, that we used to have to go seek information. But now information comes and finds us. So we have this whole other thing about trying to uh, consciously control our stimulus, right? Mm-hmm. How do you want to feel? And I think when you go away and do things like Vipassana or reflect, you become more aware of your own personal, what you feel in any given situation. And, and then I think that makes you more powerful in choosing what you want to make your, yourself feel good. And not just the short term, but over a long period of time. So in, in talking about this, you know, stimuli adjustment fatigue, I think we, you know, should talk about differences in a relationship, right? If your partner, you know, desires more stimulus than you do, right? And how do you manage that? It's a balancing act. Yeah. You know, I think it's a balancing act inside of a person because, you know, what that study shows is that we can feel good in the moment, but actually be borrowing and burning ourselves out later. And so within yourself, you have to figure out like when to cut yourself off (laughs) as opposed to overeat or something. You have to be like, okay, that's enough. And however you learn to do that. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a sensitivity scale. And then you have to do that dance with your partner who will probably be on a different end of this because of the way the laws of attraction work right? And so someone who is very outgoing might find it very attractive in their partner that they're calm and like to spend time alone and and they feel really antsy alone. And someone else who is maybe shy and not very social is really attracted to someone who's charismatic and puts themselves out there and has a lot of confidence. And then as a relationship goes on over time, right? Then... It can become a point of contention mm -hmm. in the relationship, right? Yeah. And And I think that this this whole severity of the shift in stimuli has put kind of a, a spotlight on those differences that existed before right. the whole shutdown. And so you may be really, it, it may be really in your face. When a couple first comes together, there's so much going on chemically that this sensitivity sort of goes away. And you allow yourself to be exposed to things just because you want to be with that person, Right. So if you're not a hockey fan, you might find yourself at a hockey game. Right. Just because you want to experience what your partner like enjoys about their life. If your partner rides horses, you might get up on a horse, even though you, that's not something you would normally do. Mm-hmm. But that goes away over time. Between nine months and two years into a relationship that maybe that's a little bit of uh, protection from our sensitivity. Well, also so that we can bond with hormones someone. are gone, yeah, right? They right. dissipate. And so because of that, now those differences, you know, are much more prominent and Mm -hmm. they can actually be points of contention. Right. I think the way that you and I deal with that is if it's important to one of us, the other one finds a way to support. Yep. And some, sometimes it is an adaptation, you know, maybe like, I know for a while you were really into airsoft, Mm -hmm. which I joined you in. Right. But I didn't do it as much as you did. Yeah. Right. And you didn't enjoy it as much as I did. Right. And the same thing's true of the hiking. Sure. I hiked more than you did. Right. I enjoyed it more than you did. 
but you joined me for the main parts of it that were really bonding, producing times. And so I think it is important as a partner to be a little giving and generous and not keep the world so small for your partner. Um, And then there's also the balancing act of kind of calling your partner out when they're overdoing it. And maybe it's more getting along the lines of something that's more like, I'm going to loosely use this term like an addiction, like I need this in order to feel good, right? But that's where pleasure and love start to get confusing. And so sometimes it's really easy for us to get too involved in something and lose the balance of our life, especially when we get like a new toy or something, right? Yeah, I think some people, they they kind of run into um, the difficulty of the balancing because they feel like they're compromising themselves, right? Like my partner always wants to go out and socialize and maybe you're not kind of a person that likes to socialize and so you feel forced to go into those situations. I mean, remember that, that one couple that we were working with mm-hmm. that, you know, she was totally a homebody and did not want to, you know, go out and socialize, had very few friends, and he was just a, a social butterfly. Right. You know, loved socializing, loved going out, meeting with friends, had hundreds of friends. And that was a really difficult balance for them, and I don't think they were actually able to find that balance. No. There's, it's really important to sort of do some self-reflection and to really think about the way that feels most comfortable to you to socialize. So some people, they love to walk into a crowded bar and meet new people and, you know, be really energetic and have fun. Other people would prefer like another couple that they went to dinner with in a smaller group, smaller setting. And I think that's okay. You know, I think that it's about understanding yourself and how you enjoy relating to other people. I know for us, because of the work that we do, right, we're really intense emotionally with people during our day job, Mm -hmm. right? We're talking at this really level of depth and pain and emotion. That is not how we want to socialize. No, no. (laughs) I just feel like work, right? you know. And so like the smaller gatherings for us are a little trickier, you know, and we prefer right. to, we, we prefer to have, um, activity based socializing mm-hmm. so that the focus gets to be on something else, whether well, you're throwing darts or, yeah, so it's lighter, right. you know, mm-hmm. and you're having fun and you're not really getting into like those deep topics, you know, and which often happens if it's more of a, you know, S- smaller, smaller setting. setting mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's something we had to learn too, because I think we, in the beginning, when we were so excited about learning our craft, we would probably dig into people's lives that we should not have socially because we were just so, you know, I was at least just the human condition and I just wanted to dig and learn and hear about people's experiences. And, and then the more we got busy doing it appropriately, Mm -hmm. the better boundaries we got of, yeah, I'm not going there with people. Learning to separate and find that balance for Mm -hmm. ourselves. Yeah. Right. Which is really wonderful because, you know, we work with human beings and we socialize with human beings and sometimes the lines are uh, difficult to define if you don't know yourself well. Right. Right. If you are with a partner who is very different from you in their sensitivity scale and in their 
need for exposure of other human beings, I think there's some really appropriate ways to get those needs met. You know, you can join certain groups or clubs that have common interests that are not threatening to the relationship. Hobbies are a really good idea. Um, Book clubs, sometimes, not always, but sometimes women really want more of an emotional connection and conversation than their guy wants, you know? Right. And, you know, maybe the guys want to be be more active, focused, Mm -hmm. right? Playing golf together or sports related, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, it's okay if your partner goes out and, and, you know, participates in those activities on their own. But I, I think the danger here is that it could be dividing, you know, especially if you're kind of both doing your own thing and not joining together at some point, you know, and finding some type of common interest and common activities that could be sufficient for both of you. Right. That goes back to the concept of the relationship bank account. And when you're making investments, wherever you're making investments in your life is where your energy goes, which is where you're going to feel good. And so if you're spending a lot of time on your hobbies and it's not balanced with spending time with your partner or spending alone time or all the type of maintenance that we have to do in our lives of exercising and eating and all those things, finding that balance, then your life can get out of whack and then you are walking in a dangerous place in a relationship. But if you can have that, I always used to draw this image of two circles, right? And in the one, the two circles don't touch at all. And there's a lot of space in between. In the next one, the two circles touch for just a little bit. And then in the third one, they completely merge except for a little sliver, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like a thumbnail moon. And the first one is a parallel relationship, right? There's no points of intersection. There's no connection. They're there by each other, but they're living very different lives. And then the next one, they are having a balanced relationship. So they have a connection, but they also are full individuals who have spaces for other things in their life. And then the third one is complete merger, that codependency, that just if one person does something, it pulls on the other person and there's just two enmeshment. And so... And we're not talking about just couples who enjoy doing things together. We're talking about couples who cannot... Yeah, yeah, control and can't actually survive on their own independently. Mm -hmm. Or they're hyper-focused on what their partner's doing. And so those are things that might conflict with what we're talking about that's a different problem than just being sensitive to the amount of stimuli in your environment right that's more of a controlling um more toxic problem in a relationship and it's really up to the individual person and some in the same way that you can go and work out and get stronger you can do that socially as well and you want to really do some self-reflecting on what is meaningful to you in the way that you interact in the world and your recovery time. Right. And, you know, we're talking about this um, rapid kind of adjustment, rapid stimuli adjustment, you know, and so just be aware of that, that it is going to feel a little draining. You know, it doesn't mean that you didn't like who you were around or you didn't you know, enjoy socializing is just something that you can expect on the other end. It's going to feel a little draining right now. 
That reminds me of another thing we're sort of hearing is that people are missing the commute. So they used to go to work and then they had their 30 minutes in the car to adjust and then they walked into their home. Well, now they're walking out of their home office and into family. Right. And there's that would be one of those examples, right, of this rapid shift in what's going on in the environment that's like, whoa. Right. You know, Am I, I working a, or I doing dishes or, or making, yeah. you know, doing laundry, whatever. The you hats know, are changing yeah, so it's, fast. It's so fast and it's just so difficult to adjust from one moment to the other. So this is a real thing. If you are surprised at, you know, how much you were enjoying socializing and then maybe feeling a little sad or a little... Um, just low energy. Yeah, and, low energy yeah. the next day. That's a real thing. That says that your atrophy has happened mm-hmm. and that you need to keep working at it to get stronger so you can get back to where you used to be. So we want to thank you so much for joining us and listening to Couple Synergy tonight. Our passion is in helping couples and people have happy and healthy relationships and this podcast gives us a fun way of bringing our knowledge and expertise to you, our listeners. For all of you listening, please subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, the Couples Weekend Intensive, and our premier program called Couple to Couple, look us up online at couplesynergy.com. And if you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please download it and share it. And thank you for listening. Until next time, synergize your life and synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.